I'm so excited to be here tonight. I was just talking to Steph, um, and the, the, the only times I've been here, been back here, um, was to lead worship. I'm a worship leader, uh, and I started leading worship here at CSF. Actually, in the stairwell um, back over there that nobody really uses, um, me and my friends, my sophomore year, were sitting in the stairwell, and I had my guitar, and I was deathly afraid to sing. And they're like, Lake, sing something. So I sang an Ed Sheeran song, and they're like, you should sing worship. And uh, God's used that, and now I'm a worship leader for my job. Um, never would have guessed that, but tonight we're going to be talking about remembering where we came from. And so it's a little bit about me remembering where God has taken me and where, uh, kind of where I've come from a little bit. Um, so my name is Lake, like water. That is my actual name. Um, I live in Indian- Indianapolis, worship leader at a church on the, the northeast side. Um, do youth worship, do adult worship, and I'm so thankful that there are no seventh graders in this room tonight because that's normally who I get to preach to. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of a relief. Uh, we just had a week off, right, for Thanksgiving? So it's been a little bit? Yes. Do you guys know what book we're talking about? John. Heck yeah. Uh, I want to recap just a little bit. Does anybody know what we talked about? Week one, chapter one. Does anybody have like a one word or one, fr- one phrase summary? It's okay. It was a long time ago. I don't remember what happened like four weeks ago either. Uh, my friend Jack. Jack's one of my best friends. Um, he, was, uh, he participated in my wedding, did some scripture reading. He got to preach to you guys um, that God has grace for all people. That because people are made in the image of God, people inherently have potential. And so just because they look different than us or act different than us doesn't mean that um, they're not worth, that, that they don't have value. Week two, uh, Quentin came in. I've, I've I don't know Quentin, but I've seen him kind of adjacently. He's the worship leader, uh, worship pastor at uh, Sherwood Oaks. And he came in and talked about Jonah too. Uh, He talked about Jonah's repentance, that everybody needs the cross. Everybody needs the cross. We see this in the story of Jonah, even though uh, the events of the cross hadn't actually taken place yet, and that there is great power in repentance. Jonah 3. Okay, so this isn't that long ago. Can somebody help me out of what Big Daddy Dernal talked about? You're going to use that. I know you are. I know you are. Anyone? Bad sermon. Bad, that's exactly what I have in here. Jonah preaches the worst sermon that we see in the Bible, but the message is greater than the messenger, right? God's grace is powerful in spite of Jonah's spiteful heart, right? It was the message that mattered, not the messenger, So tonight we're going to spend the rest of the night in Jonah 4. We're going to kind of cap the series with the last chapter. makes sense. Um, I remember that I read Jonah for the, not the first time, but like the first time as a uh, independent believer, independent of my my parents' faith and independent of my childhood faith. Um, I read Jonah for the first time a few years ago, and I didn't remember chapter 4 being in there the previous times I'd heard the story. Uh, In Sunday school, we talk about Jonah running from God. We talk about him getting on the boat. Everyone talks about VeggieTales every single time. Talk about VeggieTales when you think of Jonah. Um, but we, we, we know he goes to Nineveh, gets, doesn't get slapped by any fish, um, and the Ninevites receive the message of God. But we don't talk about Jonah 4. We don't talk about what happens in this story. And I think if we leave out Jonah 4, it's a tragedy. Because if we were to ask the question, why is this book in the Bible? I don't know that we get the full picture, the full answer. Um, when we leave this chapter out. So turn to Jonah 4 with me. We'll have it on the screen, I believe. Um, Does anybody have a good reading voice? 
I need somebody for this one. I know you guys didn't raise your hands on the last couple times, but I need somebody to read Jonah 4 for me. Right. Yeah. Josh, why don't you come up here? Jonah 4. Jonah 4. I got it up here too, so. Do, do you want a do mic? <laughs> no? I don't even want All right, cool. Okay. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to go flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see that till he should see what become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when Dawn came up the next day. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the, on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do. I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. <clears throat> the best ending to any book in the Bible, I think, and with cattle. Uh, God, I'm grateful for your word. Um, I'm grateful for the truth that it holds, um, the universal truth that it holds. Um, it doesn't just speak to one specific group of people. It speaks to us um, thousands of miles away from where this took place and centuries, millennia after this took place. Um, Lord, would you speak tonight? Would you use me? Um, use my words? Um, and if I say anything against you, Lord, and that's not true, I pray that we walk out of here and just totally forget it. Um, and Lord, I pray for open ears. I pray for softened hearts. And I pray for minds that don't just absorb information, uh, but use it to make a difference in the lives of others. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this first point here, um, I think we kind of talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, but th this was one of the most important parts of Jonah chapter 4. Um, when we talk about why does this book exist in the Bible. Uh, it's my first question for you guys. Why did Jonah not want to go to Nineveh? Anyone have any stabs at it? Why did Jonah not want to? Yeah. He knew how violent they were. 100% knew how violent they were. Yeah. He thought they didn't deserve to be saved. Totally. Thought they didn't deserve to be saved. Does anybody else have anything? I think those are, two, I mean, those are two right answers. Um, I used to think that the primary reason that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh uh, was because Nineveh was dangerous. That's the way the VeggieTales framed it. Um, so that's the way that I grew up, understanding it. 
Um, I thought Jonah was worried about what would happen to himself if he went there, uh, because we talked about a couple weeks ago, Nineveh was known for their hostility, especially to the outsider, especially to the foreigner. And so Jonah walking in, he knows, like, I'm going to be a target. There are stories of, of kings of Nineveh. Uh, we actually have these archaeological documents. Um, they, they wrote about flaying people alive, like taking their skin off alive, putting he- their heads on posts outside the city, um, impaling them. Um, I mean, it was a, it was a nasty place, and I, I wouldn't want to go there either. That's, that's totally reason enough for me to say I'm staying away. But let's take a look at verse 2 here. This is Jonah talking. He says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. See, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh primarily because he knew God would forgive them. Like, he knew that. It wasn't because he was afraid that bad things would be happening to him, but it was because uh, he was worried that good things would actually happen to the Ninevites. What I think is kind of egregious here, we look at Jonah in a very negative connotation, and he really does deserve it. And I think this is one of the reasons. Um, He describes God as slow to anger and abounding in love. I mean, it's true. He's quoting from Psalm 103, but he uses it as a pejorative. Like, he's not saying, God, you are great because you're slow to anger and abounding in love. He's saying, you're an unjust God because you're slow to anger and abounding in love. He uses that against him. He uses God's own word against him. But before we're quick to sit in our seats and judge Jonah, I don't know personally that I'm much better. I'd much rather see judgment upon people who have done wrong to me than mercy. Deep within us, we're all born with this phrase. I, th- I think it's one of the first things that we learn to say. It's, That's not fair. You know, if somebody takes our toy when we're little, how do we express that? We say, that's not fair. We have this intrinsic sense of justice. I have in my notes to talk about, like, us taking a caravan up to Purdue um, and saving them because they're the enemy. Uh, And I don't think they're included, though, in what God's talking about here. So I'll skip over that. Um, But a couple weeks ago, I was scrolling on X, which (laughs) formerly known as Twitter in my day. Does anybody call it X? Um, I was scrolling on X, and all of a sudden I came across this video of a Hamas terrorist cutting off the head of a Thai tourist with a garden hoe. Yeah, we went there that quickly, okay. Literally, cutting off his head with a garden hoe. Sometimes we see stuff that's so unjust that we grieve even through our phone screens thousands of miles away, but we grieve even though we see it on a screen. And I'm not normally rattled by these types of things, honestly, um, but this messed me up, and it's like, it's literally something I'm never going to forget. Like, that image will be in my head forever. I, I wish I never saw it. Our human nature yearns for justice. Yearns for justice. So who's ready to go with me to Gaza and preach repentance and faith to the terrorists? I'm not talking about the people that are are subject to the terrorism there, to the terrorists themselves. Is anybody ready to go with me and preach repentance and faith to them? Take the danger out of it, by the way. Like, you're going to be fine. Do you want them to be saved? Would that be fair? If I'm honest with myself, I don't know that my answer is yes. I don't know. I'm I'm not in that position. It's hard to work out of that hypothetical. I just, it's difficult. That's the position Jonah's in. We read the Bible with pride 
honestly, most of the time. And it makes us the heroes of the story. When we, when we try to think of who are we in the story, we typically put ourselves in the position of the good guy. And in this story, we recognize Jonah's not necessarily the good guy. We know what the right answers are, so we look at the characters like Jonah, like the Israelites who wandered in the desert and created Baal, even though God was providing them manna every single day. We look at the Pharisees, and we're quick to say that I would never have been like them. It's so easy to see that Jonah is wrong. We read this and immediately recognize that Jonah's anger with God is not something that we need to emulate. But if we're honest with ourselves, it actually is how we function most of the time. See, my knowledge with this story and my knowledge is aligned with God, but I think my empathy rests with Jonah. My knowledge is with God and with what is right, but I empathize with how Jonah is feeling in this situation. And so my first lesson that I learned from this this chapter and from the whole book is that if my views don't align with God, I have to assume that I'm the one who's wrong. That's tough. And that doesn't just apply to this story and putting ourselves in in an evangelistic um, type of situation. Do my thoughts about sin align with God's thoughts about sin? And if I have a different opinion, I have to humble myself and say, God, if I'm wrong, can you show me? I'm willing to, to lay myself down and follow you. If I'm wrong, show me. If I believe that people are deserving of judgment, yet God does not bring it in my timing, then my timing is wrong. This also doesn't just apply for judgment. If I'm desiring to go, this was big for me, leaving college without a job during COVID. I graduated in May of 2020. I didn't know where I was going to go. Um, and I thought God was unfair for not providing something for me. But God's timing was greater than my plans. I see that now. In the moment, it's really difficult to accept that. So now that we've come across this point, I need to go on a journey of discovery. How could I be wrong about this? How, How is it okay for God to be merciful to the Ninevites? How how is it okay for God to be merciful to our enemies? And God, like the great God that he is and the creative God that he is, decides to teach Jonah this using an amazing object lesson. Um, So Jonah throws throws the biggest pity pity party in the Bible. He goes off and finds a good view of the city uh, eastward. A little fun fact for you, if you see east to west in the Bible or somebody going east, that's typically associated with judgment. Judgment always comes from the east in scripture. Those directions are important. He builds a shelter and he waits for God to move. Essentially, Jonah is telling God, I'm not leaving this spot until you do something, even if it kills me. And all of a sudden, a plant rises up out of the ground and covers Jonah's shelter and it gives him shade. I've never been in the Middle East in the desert on a hot day, but I've been in Arizona on a hot day and shade feels pretty dang nice. And so I know that Jonah was probably pretty thrilled about this. But then the next day, God sends this worm, causes the plant to die. Small little worm. Not only does God take the plant away, but he causes a scorching east wind to pass over Jonah. Do you remember where judgment comes from? I find that interesting because Jonah's cries for judgment are actually being answered here, but not in the way that he had hoped. The judgment isn't falling on the Ninevites. Who's it falling on? Jonah. This kind of reminds me of uh, Hebrews 12, 6. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one who he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. 
I don't believe that God's acting in sort of a hellfire judgment to Jonah. I do believe that God loved Jonah. And this was kind of a reproof. Even in Jonah's disobedience, we see the love and grace of God. Jonah again cries out to God that he wants to die, but God responds like this. Is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? And Jonah, of course, responds with a sassy answer, but God sets him straight. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and it died quickly. But Nineveh has 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? Does this remind anybody of any other book in the Bible? This passage particularly remind anybody of any other book? What if I gave you a verse? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God gives Jonah a very clear, who in the heck do you think you are, Jonah? Just like he did with Job. I think there's a lot of similarities between Job and Jonah's stories as they address two distinct conflicts that we as humans and finite beings run into when we, when we uh, examine the sovereignty of God. Job grieves over why God would take away his family, his wealth, and his health. Job is not necessarily concerned with God's fairness or his equity, but he's more concerned with the motivations behind God's retrieval of blessings. In other words, Job is asking the question, what did I do to deserve this. Jonah, on the other hand, is not concerned with himself, but ironically, he's much more prideful. Jonah's not grieving about the things that have been taken away, but grieving over the blessings that could potentially and are being given to the Ninevites. Jonah's not concerned with how God has treated him, but he's concerned with how God is treating those whom he does not deem worthy of similar blessings. Jonah's asking the question, where Job asks the question, what did I do to deserve this? Jonah's asking the question, what did they do to deserve that? What did they do? And these questions actually work both ways, right? We can ask them in a positive sense. Like we, we can approach God and say, what did I do, Lord, to receive what you've given me? It, as kind of like we're in awe of God's goodness. Lord, I, d- I don't know what I did, but I'm grateful. In the same way we can ask what did they do, Lord, to deserve, to deserve this? As a cry for justice, as a, a cry of empathy and of co- compassion. But Jonah and Job don't approach them in the positive sense, they approach it in the negative. We can ask them and say, where we question the sovereignty of God. That's what they're doing. They're not just questioning his character, they're questioning his sovereignty. But here's the deal, no matter which way we ask that question, we end up with the same seemingly unsatisfying answer that God is sovereign. How is it okay for God to be merciful to the Ninevites? Because God is sovereign. It's unsatisfying, at least to me, at face value. That, that doesn't, has anybody read Job before all the way through? You get to the end and you're like, well, that didn't answer my questions the way I wanted it to. We get that a lot when we, when we examine the character of God. And it's because we're finite. I, don't, I, don't th- I think if we understood exactly what the sovereignty of God looked like, it would blow our minds and we'd die or we'd screw it up for ourselves. We're not gonna screw up God's sovereignty, but we can screw up using our free will, right? 
What do I mean that God is sovereign? When God's omniscience, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence collide, we end up with a God who exists everywhere and in everything, that nothing happens outside of his purview. And so this means that his compassion, his judgment, his grace, and retribution equally belong to him. We have to choose to say, God, I trust you, no matter the circumstance, because we all know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If we believe in the scriptures, we believe those words of Paul, that the things that God works are for the benefit of those he loves, not for their detriment. And this, so this sovereignty answer seems kind of unsatisfactory until we look at it this way. What did the Ninevites do to receive, God, receive God's mercy? Nothing. But what did you do to receive your salvation? Nothing. What did Jonah do to be born into the covenant people of God? Nothing, right? It's God's sovereignty that brought the gospel message to your ancestors so that you would be born with Christian parents and raised in the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. It's also God's sovereignty that even though you did not grow up in a Christian home, you know the love of Christ in a way that can speak to those who had a similar upbringing as you. I can't speak into that in the way that you can if you grew up in a non-Christian home. That's sovereignty of God. And it's the sovereignty of God that if you've never heard the gospel before, and this is your first time uh, being exposed to the love of Christ, it's God's sovereignty that you're here tonight. And I'm grateful for you. Grateful that you are here. Um, we'll, we'll get to that gospel message, though, here in a moment. So the story ends there in the, the ESV. It ends with, and also much cattle. And it just, it's abrupt. No resolution. We have no clue what happens to Jonah. We don't know if he came down from the mountain, if he stopped throwing his pity party. We don't know if God's divine object lesson worked or if Jonah's stubbornness got the better of him. I would like to personally think um, that Jonah wrote the book of Jonah, but to be honest with you, outside of, like, of Jewish tradition, we don't have anything that confirms that. A lot of scholars say that Jonah himself didn't write it. I don't like to think that way. Uh, but if he did, it probably means that the lesson worked because you're not going to write this story about yourself in case you didn't understand the point, right? But we don't know. We have no clue. It's all conjecture. So for a lot of us, we close the book or we move on um, a couple chapters later to Nahum and actually see the destruction of Nineveh. But we don't even consider one of the most important questions we can ask on this side of Christ. See, I, when I first started to truly love the Word of God, it was actually here in this room, um, we played a clip from a podcast, the Bama podcast, that I know a lot of people probably listen to, um, and it opened my eyes to a different way of approaching scripture that I never had before. And one of the things that I actually am frustrated with that podcast, um, one of the frustrations I have with it is that when we walk through the Old Testament in that podcast, we intentionally don't talk about Jesus because Jesus wasn't, like the, Jesus wasn't there at that point, like the person of Christ had not yet come. And I think that that's completely wrong on this side of Christ. When we approach the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, that it's hard to read. Jonah's an easy prophet to read. But it's, it, when we approach the scriptures, we have to ask the question, where do I find Jesus in this story? The famous preacher Charles Spurgeon has a quote that says, I take my text and make a beeline to the cross. 
And I think that is so corny. I make a beeline to the cross. Nobody says beeline, not even in the 1800s when he lived. But I take it to heart, actually. I think of it every time I write something like this, um, that I have to end up at the cross somehow. How can we do this, though, that isn't eisegetical? Eisegetical meaning where I'm not reading something that doesn't actually exist in the text. I'm just inserting my own feelings or what I want to read and hear from the text. How do we do this without being eisegetical? Well, we look at Luke 24, 27, where Luke says, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. So if we believe that the scriptures are God-breathed, that they're true, they contain the divine word of the Lord. And if Jonah was a prophet and the book is prophetic in nature, then according to Luke, Jesus has to be in Jonah somewhere. At least a piece of the gospel has to be found in the book of Jonah. Why is Jonah considered a prophetic book though? Because we've already established that Jonah sucked as a prophet. Is that a bad word here? Kidding. I lived here, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the book is more narrative than it is prophetic. It does not contain the symbolic or apocalyptic liter- uh, literature or imagery that we see in most, if not all, other prophetic books. Um, nor does it speak directly into the relationship between God and his people, which is what the majority of the prophets are doing. They're, they're saying, Israel, this is my, my word to, to you or about you. What if the words of Jonah, though, are not the prophecy? What if the content of the narrative is the prophecy? Do you know that Jonah is read every single year in synagogues on a Jewish holiday? Does anybody have a guess on the Jewish holiday? Is anybody in here Jewish? Okay, cool. I didn't think so, but I just had to ask. Anybody? Yom Kippur. That's right. It is right. Yom Kippur is the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. The purpose of Yom Kippur is to affect individual and collective purification by the practice of forgiveness of sins of others and by sincere repentance of one's own sins against God. Before the destruction of the temple, the high priest would perform a sacrificial ceremony on behalf of himself, the priesthood, and the entire nation of Israel. And then he would enter into the Holy of Holies, we all know what the Holy of Holies is. It's where the, the, the actual physical presence of God dwelled within the temple. And there was one time of a year where the high priest or anybody was able to enter into the Holy of Holies. Can you guess what day that was on? Yom Kippur. The high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat that was in there, thereby cleansing the Jewish people of sin. Yom Kippur was preceded by 10 days of repentance in which the Jewish people abstained from the pleasures of the world in order to focus on their need for God. Why would the Jewish people choose to read Jonah on their holiest day? Because the story of Jonah is a story of scandalous grace. It's a story about the power of repentance and the mercy of God. It's a story that says if God can save the Ninevites, he can save his people. Why do we not celebrate Yom Kippur as Christians? Because Christ himself is the mercy seat. 
Listen to this from uh, Romans 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Remember that word, propitiation. By his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show that God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That word propitiation is used one other time in the New Testament. The Greek word for that is elisterion. And the one other time it's used by the writer of Hebrews, and it does not say propitiation in our English translation. It says mercy seat. Christ is the mercy seat by his blood. While the Jewish people were under the old covenant, bound by the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, the new covenant has set us free through the blood of Christ. A once for all sacrifice made for all people and not just the Jews. So when the priest would go in and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, he would sprinkle it every single year for the sins of the Jewish people. And Christ, when he died on the cross, the actual mercy seat, shed his blood once for all for all people. So how is this book prophetic then? What does this look forward to? Well, I believe Christ is the greater Jonah. We see parallel after parallel between Jesus and Jonah, and each time Jesus perfects what Jonah failed to do. Think about it. Jonah's mission was to preach repentance Jesus' mission was to call all people, Jew, Gentile, into a new covenant relationship. In dramatic fashion, Jonah selfishly wishes for death so that he can escape his discomfort and avoid seeing his enemies enjoy God's mercy. Jesus, on the other hand, in quiet forbearance, endured torture and death intended for sinners in order to save them from hell. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. Some people actually believe that this is metaphor, that Jonah died. Christ was in the belly of the earth for three days. Jonah preached repentance in light of impending destruction to Nineveh. Christ preached love, repentance, and forgiveness to all people through the power of the cross. Notice that Jonah's message was not catered towards the Jewish people, but Christ's message is towards both Jew and Gentile because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and then the Greek. So who are we, then, in this story? And I think, I think this is a pretty important question to ask yourselves in a, in a humble way. Because like we said, we often place ourselves as the wrong person in the story. We give ourselves, we have a hero complex, right? But the more I read this story in context with the rest of Scripture, and through this prophetic lens that Jesus is the greater Jonah, I'm a Ninevite. I'm the Gentile. I'm the one in a far off land. I'm the one who Jonah would look at and say, he does not deserve mercy. He does not deserve forgiveness. If I'm honest with myself, I'm the oppressor. I'm unjust. And it would be totally right for God to judge me. It'd be totally right, honestly, for God to judge you too. 
because you were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, along with the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, raised us up with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, but a gift from God and not by works so that no one may boast. For you are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God the Father prepared beforehand that you might walk in them. Guys, that's the truth of the gospel. If you're the Ninevite, you need to hear that. And guess what? Just like me, you're the Ninevite. God's compassion and mercy were made manifest in Christ. And it's because of God's unfairness Listen, because of God's unfairness that we have any sort of hope. I have to remember that I was once in the position of the Ninevites, ignorant in my sin, concerned, uh, not concerned at all with the things of God. I was grafted into the family. You were grafted into the family. And if he was fair with me then, I wouldn't be here. And if he was fair with me now and us now, we'd all be dead. But God... I'm grateful that he's not fair with this kind of compassion. That I don't have to pay for my sins because of what Jesus did for me. That you don't have to pay for your sins because of what Jesus' blood did. It's unfair. Think think about this. This this is crazy to me. It's unfair that because you've been made new in Christ, because I've been made new in Christ, that he conforms me to his image. He doesn't just save us, he sanctifies us so that each day we look more like Jesus. And one day we're gonna be unified with him as brother, as an heir. Like that's, that, that's mind-blowing to me. Last thing I learned from Jonah, and I see this in, in scripture as a whole, I hope that God never stops being unfair with his compassion. I sure hope he doesn't. If you hear the description of the Ninevite, if you hear it and realize that you do not know Jesus, I want you to know that he loves you. Like truthfully, he loves you. He has compassion for you because you are created in his image. And his forgiveness is available to you because in the same way that he died for the people that know him today, he died for you as well. That's available to you. Brothers and sisters, if you hear this and you empathize like I do with Jonah, and you call for God's judgment at every turn, you need to remember how you were saved. Remember where you came from. And remember that you did nothing to get to where you are. It's a free gift of God. Remember where you came from. Ask the Lord that he might grant you with even a fraction of his compassion that you might love others as he first loved you. I want the band to come up um, as we close out here. on the way down, I was, I listened to Romans 1 through 8, Romans chapters 1 through 8, and I didn't realize how much I needed to hear those words. Um, this is true. Like, we don't just gather on Thursdays to talk about a good story. We, we gather on Thursdays to talk about something that's true. 
we go out and look, look at church history and see people that have died for what this says, literally died for what this says. And if you're like me, when I was here at CSF, I was great in this room. I was great in the 202 and a half, talking with my friends about my Bible studies. But as soon as I walked out, I was embarrassed to wear a hat that had a cross on it. Like legit, that's the true story. Do you live like this is true? Do you live like your life depends on it? Do you remember where you came from? That when you walk out onto campus and we're automatically judgmental about all these things that people are doing that we don't, do we remember that we did nothing to deserve the grace that God has given to us? And that same grace is available to them. Jesus loves you just like he loves them. Live like this is true. Live like this is true and that your life depends on it and that others' lives depend on it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good and gracious and merciful. And we don't deserve any of that, Lord. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Lord, you are a loving God who chose to take on flesh to die for our sins. And in your active obedience, Lord, you chose to keep the law on our behalf. And in your passive obedience, you chose to die, go to the cross for our sins. But Lord, you rose on the third day. And you've made it possible for us to have new life in you. And Lord, when we recognize that we have that new life and that we're not just human beings, we're spiritual beings and dwelled by the Holy Spirit that we have power that makes us more than conquerors in Christ. To where when we can walk out of CSF and onto our campus, which we all admit needs God, right? God, this campus needs you. Let us join in the work that you're doing here. Give us boldness when we're shot down. Give us encouragement, Lord, when it doesn't go the way that we hope, but Lord, we know that your plans are greater than ours, and that if we follow your will, you will never forsake us. Help us to remember where we came from, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.